This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with award-winning investigative journalist and author Jess Hill. Jess joined me to speak about her podcast series, The Trap, and she explores domestic abuse in Australia, which is endemic, as well as its many insidious forms like coercive control. A content warning here that there will be discussion of domestic abuse and examples of what coercive control entails. Hope that you're having a great morning, and I certainly am. I know that my next guest surely is because an election is around the corner and it is basically um, Christmas time for journalists, but probably also torture at the same time. So it's a weird time. Uh, but I very much look forward to welcoming back onto the program Rachel Withers, who is contributing editor to The Monthly, and she also writes a brilliant column which is published uh, every weekday on the monthly's website called The Politics. And I'm really excited to be chatting with her about all things federal politics, particularly given that the federal budget was delivered last Tuesday evening, uh, Labor's budget reply Thursday evening, and many other major events have been happening in the meantime. So I welcome Rachel onto the program. And hey there, how are you doing, Rachel? I'm good, Amy. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. And um, I've got to say, there are so many topics that we probably won't get to all of them. So I'm upfront apologising to people if we don't. Because it feels that way every time, you know, that you, yeah. you say the budget was last week, it feels like it was last month now. There's just so much stuff. So much has happened, exactly. Um, and well, also, maybe it is kind of revealing as well, because the budget to me, when it was delivered, at least in speech form, I was waiting for it to happen. Like at the end when it finished, I was still waiting for the detail. It felt like a really nothing budget for something that was actually being delivered right before calling a federal election. I wonder what was your assessment of the budget in the political sense of it and whether it was going to achieve what they thought it might achieve? Yeah, well, it didn't certainly didn't have any sort of grand visions for the country in there, but what they were really trying to push in the lead up to the budget and and was certainly splashed across front pages the next day was the cost of living focus, um, that it was suddenly, you know, very urgent that they addressed the rising cost of living and, um, and inflation. And so they had sort of three, I think, key measures that they wanted to be the headlines, which was the, the cut to the fuel excise, uh, the $250 payment to people on welfare and other income support and another $420 tax offset for low and middle income earners. Um, but that was coming, of course, with the end, the supposed final, this is the last time we do that tax offset for low and middle income earners. But um, I think they really wanted people to be feeling like they were getting, you know, some amount of cash in their pocket, whether it was $250, $420 or whatever you get from uh 22 cents off every litre of petrol you buy. Um, but if yeah, it's think, all, if it all flows through to the customer. Yes, but they certainly wanted people to feel like there was something in it for them specifically. Mm, it seems like a rather cynical exercise, um, not that surprising. But, I mean, if you look at the low and middle income tax offset, 
that removing that will actually lead to um, people losing thousands of dollars in a year. It could be around $9,000, I think was one figure I saw, depending on where you sit in the tax bracket. So a one-off payment of $420 or $50 isn't really going to do all that much to counteract what they're really losing for their cost of living uh, situation. Absolutely. And I think the, the one thing uh, the Treasurer kept saying in the lead up to the budget and in his speech was that it was targeted temporary relief. And it, it really was exactly that. It's it's not a long-term structural solution. It's not a permanent tax cut for people on, on the lower end of um, the income spectrum. It's, it's, it's a, a sweetener just before the budget and the tap is being turned off if if the coalition wins the election. Uh, but, you know, these tax cuts are coming to an end, whereas there are other tax cuts that are baked in for high-income earners that are still coming and there's no conversation at all about, about those being taken away. No, and they're very costly. Like, it's shocking to me. $15 billion a year is what they're going to cost those ones. A year? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, yep. and then we saw the Labor Party deliver their speech, uh, Anthony Albanese, the opposition leader, on Thursday night. And that, I mean, it was very stark in the rhetoric, in the detail. There was, I, th I think, more detail, to be honest, in the um, Labor speech than there was in the government speech. Uh, but also, I mean, Labor clearly has a key platform that they wanted to kind of put into their budget reply, and that was aged care. And it's something that the coalition has so objectively failed on in pretty much every single metric that exists. It's not that surprising that Labor would choose something like that that's in a care industry that um, focuses on lower-paid workers, that is also about the dignity of all Australians. It's something that um, Labor generally cares about is equality and fairness and uh, dignity for older Australians. So, I mean, it seemed like a, a good policy choice to make when you were trying to potentially highlight the contrast between the two options. I wonder if you agree with that assessment and also what you think of the um, the coalition's response to the aged care platform that Labor has put forward. Yeah, look, I think it was a good um, choice for Labor to be going for, you know, an, an issue like this and one that we've heard so much about over the last few years um, in the lead up to the Royal Commission and since the Royal Commission that there is just such so much suffering and neglect in this area. Um, and I think Labor also probably saw it as a as a way to go big, but also safe. Um, they they are still trying to be a bit of a small target here. I think um, we saw the coalition immediately jump on them. You know, how are you going to pay for this? Where are you going to get this two point five billion? Um, which was just so shocking because you know the the coalition had just pledged you know billions here, billions there, billions in very questionable potentially pork-barrelled infrastructure. Um, so 2.5 actually wasn't huge in the scheme of things, um, but mm. certainly that question immediately started up that that seems to only be asked of Labor, which is uh, how are you going to pay for it? You know, what taxes are you secretly going to increase? And it, it's, you know, Labor's in this really uncomfortable position where they they were tying themselves in knots at the end of last week saying they wouldn't raise taxes because it's now such an uncomfortable place for them. Um, they've, they've backed the tax cuts for high-income earners. Um, there's not a lot they're willing to actually say about um, how they would 
how they would fund it. They they say they won't do an aged care levy, which was recommended by the Royal Commission, but neither will the coalition. Um, but look, ultimately, the question only ever seems to be asked of Labor. You know, we never seem to ask um, the coalition, how are you going to pay for, you know, any of these things? We found out later that day that, you know, the scrapped French submarines are going to cost $5 billion to the taxpayer. We don't say, you know, what taxes are you going to raise to uh, pay for that? Um, so, yeah. yeah, there's been this, you know, ridiculous debate about how Labor's going to pay for this, but at the same time they don't really seem to want to say anything about, about raising taxes other than um, on multinationals, which is obviously yeah. a much safer area to talk about rather than on individual taxpayers. Yes, well, it seems that we can only afford uh, to pay for things like tax cuts for wealthy people and for undelivered submarine programs because we changed our minds and uh, screwed over France. You know, when it comes to things like uh, increasing New Start or you know, youth allowance or the disabled, the disability support pension, you know, these are things that we couldn't possibly do because we can't afford it. Um, you know, we have seen some great analyses come out around the inequality that the budget does seem to perpetuate uh, and how different groups of people are affected and whether they are actually well off or better off or not. And we've kind of hinted at the fact that perhaps they're not. But I wonder if you could share some of the data around the reality in terms of, um, you know, just what the budget is delivering for different people in different tax brackets. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it seemed, I suppose, at first that they're talking about, you know, um, a $250 sum for people on welfare and 420 for low and middle income earners. But um, there's been modelling now done to show that actually 56% of the sort of monetary value of these measures is actually going to go to middle and high income earners um, because that that $420 tax offset is for people earning up to $126,000. Uh, but that's, that is the most costly measure. Um, mm. And it, it found that households that have the highest amount of financial stress, so the people in the lowest 20% of income brackets, are actually only going to get 15% of the gains from this. Um, and, you know, there's $250 only extra going to people on welfare. Um, and, you know, people who are not paying tax are not going to get the tax offset. So it's those people who are really, really struggling and living off, you know, a... a um, Below the poverty level line. that is yes, below the poverty line, and they're just going to get two hundred and fifty. So there is something there mm. for them, but if you actually add up all the dollars that are going to be uh, splashed around um, in this budget, it's fifty six percent of them are going to middle and high income earners. Yeah, and I mean, then of course petrol as well. It's going to be the people you know, the lowest of of income earners are probably not buying that much petrol at this point. Mm. No, that's true. Well, I think I know a lot of people are modifying their driving behaviours at the moment because of the clear, you know, madness of the prices at the moment. Um, I, I was just thinking, you know, if you were being logical about things, which clearly we're not um, in <laughs> government land, but if you were being logical, you would give uh, the people on welfare $420, wouldn't you, <laughs> and make it the reverse, I would say, based on yeah, need. Yeah, and 
I, I think that's just not in their ideological makeup. You know, the, the coalition wanted to be seen to be addressing cost of living um, and, it, and it has been a well-received budget. Like 50% of voters think it's a good budget um, and, you know, even higher on those those um, specific measures, like 72% of people say that the um, $420 tax offset is a good thing. Um, but yeah, if you really break it down, it's it's not necessarily going to the people who are struggling the most with the rising cost of living. Yeah. And as we've pointed out, it's a one-off thing. So it's yes. not going to, it's going to get right to the election uh, and, some, and some maybe just after the election. But then beyond that, as you've um, hinted there, there might be some kind of austerity measures coming in um, yeah, based on I, past history. Yeah, and a lot of people are saying this budget is sort of a trap for um, Labor if they win government because in six months' time they're going to have to decide whether to put the price of petrol up, uh, yeah. which is going to be a very unpopular thing to do. Um, and then, of course, in 12 months' time, people who've been getting this tax offset are not going to get it anymore. Mm, yeah, and there's also this other part of cost of living uh, discussion, which is about real wages growth and the fact that that has not gone up at all and inflation um, is going up. And so I guess there's this concern around real wages growth and who's going to fix it and, you know, what kind of levers does, gov does government have and uh, a lot of kind of pressure put on Labor given that they are the party of the worker, so to speak. Uh, and we did see, you know, that questioning right after Anthony Albanese's speech on 7.30 uh, and, you know, it's kind of a really difficult question to answer because government doesn't necessarily have all the answers. Um, but we have seen some really interesting pieces talking about this and, of course, bargaining and union powers is, is kind of one example of how um, we don't have uh, that ability to kind of drive up wages on a, at a group level. Uh, but I wonder, do you think that either side seem to have an answer for that particular issue that everyone has been uh, talking about for so long and saying, well, surely it's going to be, you know, going up soon, especially with unemployment at such low levels. Yeah, look, I don't, I don't think either side really has a particularly compelling answer. You have the treasurer saying that they are going to go up, not that he's going to do something to make them go up, but that they are going to go up. And that's a prediction he's made that that keeps being proven wrong. Um, but then you've got Labor saying, we will do something, but it's not quite clear what they're going to do. Um, so you've at least got one side saying something has to be done. Um, but, yeah, as you say, like, wages aren't rising under the conditions that they used to. The fact that we have really low unemployment at the moment and wages are not going up, it says that things don't work like they used to. Um, and so, yeah, I think they're going to have to uh, get some some really smart heads together on this, but at least with uh, Labor, there seems to be the um, the impetus to do that, perhaps. Mm, the does, yeah. And one thing I wanted to touch on uh, around the budget is obviously we were we do look at polls, and um, some of them are more accurate than others, and we'll only probably know how accurate they are once we get to the election. But we have seen news poll come out. Uh, over the weekend, and it was interesting to see that there was a very ever so tiny shift in the two party preferred one point across to the LNP. So it became 46 to 54 Labor, um, but that's really quite minuscule in terms of the shift that's occurred after a budget that was supposedly meant to kind of garner them 
great amounts of, of votes. And then also there was a shift in the primary vote uh, as well. So Labor um, went down by three, uh, LNP went up by one, and uh, the Greens gained two. So a lot of the um, ALP lost you know, points to the Greens and uh, and the others have stayed basically the same, One Nation and the United Australia Party. So um, we have seen, I guess, a lot of talking up of the fact that there's been a ever so slight shift towards uh, the Liberals. I wonder if you think that's kind of overcooked. Look, I think it's not the bounce they would have liked. It's a little bounce. Um, they also had their primary vote go up today in the... Um, resolve poll in the nine papers. But I think um, what was really telling um, in that poll is that um, Anthony Albanese has just overtaken Scott Morrison as preferred Prime Minister. We've seen them neck and neck um, in different polls in the last few months, but um, he's now in the lead there, 37 to 36. And the Sydney Morning Herald has splashed that across the front page. You know, Anthony, Anthony Albanese takes the lead. Um, and so I think what what this is really um, shaping into is is a, a the campaign Labor probably always wanted it to be, which is going to be about Scott Morrison's character. And it's not so much anything um, that Labor has done in the past week that's put um, Albanese in the lead there, but Morrison's spiralling popularity at the moment. Um, and I think Labor just wants to make it about that. And, um, yeah, if... if you know, to have to have the opposition leader as preferred prime minister is quite a big deal because as, as, even when uh, the opposition is up in the in the you know two party preferred, generally the prime minister is the preferred prime minister. So there's something going really wrong mm. with Scott Morrison's leadership at the moment. Well, is it any wonder in the sense that even uh, on budget night on Tuesday evening, last Tuesday evening, we saw Liberal Senator Conchetta Fioravanti Wells, who is a member of the Liberal right, uh, give a 10 minute speech in Parliament in the Senate, uh, essentially outlining many different allegations against Scott Morrison and Alex Hawke. Uh, really quite shocking ones. I recommend everyone actually to watch the whole speech because I don't think the way it's been characterised uh, in the media has been quite as fulsome in terms of exactly <laughs> what she was uh, alleging, but I'm not going to repeat it because she had parliamentary privilege and we don't. Um, but they should check it out because essentially uh, she did she did label him, quote, an autocrat and a bully who has no moral compass um, she did say that he was, quote, not fit to be prime minister, um, that he had, quote, destroyed the Liberal Party. Uh, and I think there she is referencing to his interventions in the New South Wales uh, yeah. branch pre-selections. I mean, these are not shy words. She really did um, kind of lay it down to him in, in terms of what her views are. I wonder if you could share with us the context of this speech and why she said what she said. A lot of people have said, oh, she's just a sore loser because she lost her spot on the Senate ticket. Um, and so Jim Mullen is getting the third spot, not her. But I don't think it's close to that. There is a lot more to it. And, and she's not the first person to label the prime minister in this way and to question his character, is she? No, um, not at all. I mean, th that was the immediate reaction last week from Scott Morrison and from his closest supporters that, you know, um, 
this is, you know, a, a woman who's just lost her pre-selection, um, you know, that that's why she's saying those things. She's disappointed. She tends to do this. Um, but the thing is, it's it's just yet another allegation that seems to fit into a pattern, whether it's coming from someone um, who's just lost their spot or someone who is uh, walking out the door, as Julia Banks did, or, um, yeah, or who, who's sitting across from Morrison in a, a negotiation. You know, women from across the spectrum, but very much inside his own party are saying these things. Um, and the other thing with Conchetta Ferrabanti Wells's claims is that this stuff about what Morrison did um, back in his own pre-selection in 2007 has been floating around for a while. And there are these, she referenced these stat decks that existed of, of what Morrison had done and said to his Lebanese opponent. And, um, those stat decks have now come out and those were signed in 2016. Um, it's not, you know, it's not something that's suddenly being claimed now. People have, have known about this before. Um, and yeah, things just, bombs just keep dropping everywhere, I think. Um, and it's, it's all things from his past. Um, not, well, I mean, there's some current stuff too with the current pre-selection dramas, but, um, it's stuff that has been out there before, but, um, yeah, people are, are really, um, eager to share now. Yeah, <laughs> they certainly certainly are eager to share. Uh, well, I mean, even um, the his competitor in that pre-selection, he actually won. Like Scott Morrison lost that pre-selection on numbers. So there's, you know, it's kind of amazing that in the end he did end up as the member for Cook. Um, and there's a yeah, there's a whole long backstory to all of this um, that we probably won't get into. But we've also seen um, with the New South Wales pre-selections, Scott Morrison uh, and Alex Hawke stalling and stalling. Um, not Alex Hawke essentially, who was Scott Morrison's um, agent in the pre-selection panels, uh, not turning up to the meetings so that the state branch couldn't engage in their usual pre-selection process so that they could democratically choose who they wanted uh, to represent each seat. And so um, that pre-selection process couldn't be engaged. So it meant that up until very recently, there were no confirmed candidates in uh, around 12 seats in New South Wales. Now we've seen the uh, federal branch step in, Scott Morrison, Alex Hawke, and also Dominic Perrottet, the New South Wales Premier, so that three existing MPs were reselected essentially or pre-selected again so that they could run in the seats they're already in, like Susan Lee as an example. Um, but there's now also nine additional people who Scott Morrison has essentially chosen. Uh, and I know a lot of, of Liberals are very angry about this because they believe that he's essentially shaping the party for it to be his party. Uh, they're taking away their power um, and ability to choose who they think is right. And essentially it's now, quote unquote, Scott Morrison's party, not the Liberal Party in their eyes. Um, and I was kind of interested to see, you know, who was uh, pre-selected. And it was very disappointing to see that um, in terms of diverse ethnically and culturally diverse candidates, the people who were pre-selected um, in that group essentially were pre-selected for unwinnable seats. Uh, so that was really disappointing. But there were some women who were pre-selected, so I guess there's um, a small silver lining. But that is not the end of it, is it, Rachel? This is still an ongoing dispute in the courts. Yeah, so the that um, 
power that they gave themselves to appoint those candidates is being challenged. Uh, we were waiting on a result um, from the Court of Appeal yesterday that I don't think we we got. Um, and it's it, look, it's fairly likely that one will go Scott Morrison's way. Um, but yeah, it's it, it certainly there is a internal war going on there in New South Wales. And it seems like Pat Morrison has just, you know, if, if for years he's been ruthless and willing to, um, you know, do whatever it takes right from 2007 up until now, um, it seems like maybe he's just started to overstep the mark here with this um, this sort of New South Wales takeover. And, um, yeah, as you say, people are not happy about it. Um, you know, people, long-time Liberal Party members are saying they won't vote for him. Uh, there was concerns that, you know, they won't even hand out, you know, volunteers won't be willing to hand out for candidates they didn't even get to choose. Um, yeah, and then we saw today um, another New South Wales Liberal, a state Liberal MP, Catherine Cusack, has has become the latest, uh, the latest bomb dropper, I think, um, in the media. She's out there saying this morning that she won't vote for Scott Morrison and she even said on Iron Breakfast that, nothing at this point could make her vote for Scott Morrison. It is pretty amazing the bomb she did drop because <laughs> if you read it on the, the Guardian and, as you say, she's given an interview on RN. She's also spoken to news.com.au. Um, she said to them, everybody is fed up with this. The only way to deal with this behaviour is to stand up to him and that's exactly what I'm doing. Um, she said that Scott Morrison has essentially ruined the party. Uh, I mean, she does. she also doesn't hold back. Uh, anything. And I mean, people might say, oh, well, she's already resigned her position, which she did over the fact that Scott Morrison wasn't giving equal funding to flooded communities. Uh, so, I mean, she already has resigned on principle over that particular issue. But I mean, it is quite brave for a Liberal woman, as in particular, to essentially ostracise herself, basically, because it's going to be very hard to have any kind of um, connection back to the Liberal Party at this point when she's so strongly associated, uh, disassociated herself from it and from the leader of the party. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we are seeing today um, kind of the, the defence come out for Scott Morrison. You know, we see um, ministers leap to his defence. You know, we've never seen this kind of behaviour. Um, you know, more sour grapes, et cetera, et cetera. But I think if you really think about it, um, as you say, that it is a really difficult thing for someone to speak out against their own party. And who has more of a sort of um, uh, incentive here to push a particular narrative? And I'd say it's the people trying to save the government uh, mm. more so than people who are. Uh, choosing for for a range of different reasons to speak out about this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, obviously, this is something that's ongoing, and Labor probably must be rejoicing that the um, focus has kind of removed itself from them and their party issues, or the, the attention on their party issues, which had been absolutely obsessively covered by the media. I'm sure it's still not necessarily going to go away completely. But I wondered, where do you think Labor is at now at this stage in the campaign? You've already mentioned uh, Anthony Albanese and his position as being preferred prime minister in, in one of the polls. Do you think that there has been, I guess, any momentum shift or uh, increase in their chances after the budget reply? And do you think that he's performing better than he has been recently? Look, I, I mean, he's certainly, Anthony Albanese looks sharp and, um, 
it was a good budget reply speech. I, I saw a lot of commentary just on online about it being sort of the, one of the the most um, leader-like speeches he'd given um, in that budget reply, which is pretty good timing for the, the one just before the election, I suppose. Mm. Um, but I still think it's, um, you know, the, what is going on with the polls and, and the entire election really is, is more about Morrison than about Albanese. And, you know, I think Labor is going to try and stay small here. Um, and I guess they just have to hope that Morrison isn't able to turn things around like he has done in the past. Um, you know, they don't want to be seen as as a risky option. That's that's what Morrison will be trying to paint them as. So they're going to just hope, I think, that all the attention stays on Scott Morrison, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, it may still be that way, given that we keep getting all these surprising revelations. Uh, who knows who will come next in the, the Liberal lineup, or maybe it'll come from the Nationals. Uh, but <laughs> we have also seen uh, the independents asked about who they would support uh, if it got to a, a situation of a hung parliament. And Zali Stegall was kind of put on the spot on Q&A uh, asking what she would do. And she did intimate that if uh, Scott Morrison was not the leader of the Liberal Party, uh, that she would potentially give her support to them in a, a kind of hung parliament situation, which perhaps did surprise some who thought a change of leader is not really going to change their position on climate change uh, to any kind of drastic extent because of the way the Nationals have negotiated uh, that situation. So I, I wondered what your take was on that because there's a bit of kind of tension and controversy around the independents as they are now who clearly are in blue ribbon seats, many of them, and who do need to appeal to Liberal voters in order to take votes off them and in some cases win Liberal seats. So I just kind of wanted to look at that a little bit more. Yeah, it is interesting because um, I suppose these these independents running in Liberal seats, they do sort of present themselves as progressive Liberals or disaffected Liberals. Um, and so they do vote for a lot of, you know, the Liberals' tax policies and things like that. Um, and so I guess they do have to leave open um, the thought that potentially they could support a Liberal government if it was the right kind of Liberal government. But at the same time, half their argument, you know, um, against um, the kinds of um, sitting MPs they're challenging, whether it's Dave Sharma or Tim Wilson, um, is that those... Um, moderate Liberal MPs don't actually achieve anything. Um, and that that's the argument Dave Sharma makes, that he can actually do things from inside the tent. And so then for someone like Zali Stegel to say that they might support a Liberal government that had one of these types of Liberals at the helm, obviously she was referring to Josh Frydenberg, mm. but then he's exactly the kind of Liberal that these independents are trying to take down. So it, it, it <laughs> didn't quite make sense really. And I think it... Unfortunately to me, it did point to a little bit of a contradiction in their position, um, you know, that they have to get rid of people like Dave Sharma and Tim Wilson because they're not doing uh, their job as the moderate wing of the Liberal Party, and that is correct, but why then would you say that you would support a government with one of those at the helm? Yeah, no, it's a, a really kind of stark contradiction now the way that she kind of was failing to prosecute her argument in, in a clear way was mm. 
yeah, pretty revealing. Um, one thing relating back to the budget that I did want to touch on, Rachel, was also the fact that, uh, well, climate change wasn't really a thing in Josh, Mar uh, Josh Frydenberg's speech, which was not that surprising. Uh, but then when we look at the detail of the budget and what is happening there uh, for climate change, there is a, a cut to funding for climate change so that yearly expenditure on climate change programs will be 35% lower in 2025-26 than they are now. So, I mean, that is one key area that has been quite drastically cut. And I guess you could say that even the programs that are in place are not really that effective in terms of tackling climate change. No. And I mean, the, I guess the thing that, um, ever since they put together their very belated debt zero plan, if you could call it that, um, was that the, the Liberal Party says that this will be about technology, not taxes. And, and I suppose what they mean by that is they, they want the market to take care of it, um, not them. But we're also seeing, um, you know, reports coming from the renewable sector that the lack of direction from the government is actually stimming, you know, private investment. If you Even if you do believe that, that this should be... Um, driven by private capital. It's the, the government is sending the wrong message. Um, and, and it's not going to actually this magical technology that they think is just going to be developed isn't being uh, developed fast enough because of the direction they're, they're setting. Mm, yeah. And all, well, another thing that's um, interesting on a related note is that Angus Taylor is trying again and again and again to uh, change the regulations for ARENA and its funding. I mean, that is also kind of ridiculous, isn't it, that they have to keep quashing these regulation changes? Yeah, I mean, to me that looks like, you know, the coalition government just trying to get some, trying to push their the last of their agenda while they've got the chance, I suppose. Um, but, yeah, that that is something that, that has been pushed back on again and again and again. Um, and, you know, um, it's pretty clear that, that this particular government is never really going to do what's what's needed in this space. No, absolutely not. And I guess on a final note, uh, it's worth mentioning that the coalition is engaging in a flurry of appointments to yes. various bodies, um, including, I think, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Uh, but we also did see, I think... Um, an appointment to the Murray-Darling Basin Authority uh, with a, a former oil and gas CEO taking up the leadership of that too. Uh, and if you look at the list of people uh, kind of appointed to the tri tribunal, pretty much all of them have some direct association with the Liberal Party. I mean, this is pretty bold kind of and bold uh, appointments. <laughs> yeah, and un unfortunately it's pretty standard and, you know, that this is something we do see in the lead up to an election, especially when the government thinks it's going to lose. Um, and, and these positions are, many of them, you know, multi-year terms. So, they, you know, they're stacking these these um, decision-making bodies and, and panels and stuff with, with their, own, um, their own preferred candidates and, in many cases, their mates. So, um, mm. yeah. What can you do? Nothing, it seems. Nothing. <laughs> exactly. It's quite ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rachel, it's been great to chat with you about these issues. And I do hope that people can check out your column uh, throughout the week. And also, I believe you have a podcast that's going to be starting. Yes. Uh, so, The Politics is the name of the column, and we're turning it into a daily uh, afternoon 
podcast, you know, it's about six minutes, six minutes long and it's, um, me reading out my analysis of the day. Um, and it should start dropping from around, uh, I think from around five thirty um, from today onwards, hopefully, uh, closer and closer to five o'clock. But yeah, so that's going to be just wherever you get your podcasts from and it'll be called The Politics. That's really exciting. And um, yeah, great that you're making it accessible for people who may be uh, not able to read but can listen to something. So I think that's really great too. Yeah, we're excited. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you, Rachel, again for joining me and I hope we can chat again very soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Amy. I've just been speaking with Rachel Withers, who is contributing editor to The Monthly, and she's also columnist for The Politics, which you can find on The Monthly's website. And as you heard there, there's going to be a podcast launching as of today, so you should definitely check it out. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. It is an absolute pleasure and delight to welcome back onto the show John Keane, who is a professor of politics at the University of Sydney. He's the author of many books, including The Life and Death of Democracy, The New Despotism, as well as this book we're about to discuss, The Shortest History of Democracy, which is out now through Black Ink Books. I welcome John onto the show, and it's great to have you for a third time, John. Thank you very much, uh, Amy. Good morning to you and and everybody. I'm delighted to talk some sense on uncommon sense again. (laughs) Well, that's great. We did have such a great response to your last chat about the new despotism, and it seems that now uh, things have only progressed in that domain and what could be more overt or obvious than the situation between Russia and Ukraine with Russia invading Ukraine and Putin's style of despotism on show for all to see in, in its kind of uh, really overt glory. Yes, uh, the book, The Shortest History of Democracy, appeared uh, it was written during lockdown in 2021, but it appeared uh, in a period, as we all know, uh, when Biden's talk of the global struggle between democracy and autocracy is is unfolding under our noses and before our eyes. And the book tries to address that big issue of the future of democracy, but it does so by looking backwards over the shoulders of the present uh, to try to make some sense of a different sense of of where democracy came from. Uh, and the, the, the basic point, Amy, is to say that um, having a pair of eyes in the back of our heads is really important in trying to make sense of what's going on in matters of democracy in the present. Uh, the rule is, you know, people who are ignorant of the past inevitably misunderstand the present. That's the starting point of this this book. Yeah, I'm sure every historian would very fiercely agree with you. Uh, and it is great to see just how detailed this history is. And no doubt there's a lot more you could have put in there if you wanted to, but because it's the shortest history, I'm sure you had to be prudent there are so many great quotes in this book and and the introduction is a really wonderful way of starting to dip your toe into the water. And one particular quote that I loved was from a Chinese writer, 
Lin Yutang, uh -huh. who you say once said that humans are more like potential crooks than honest gentlefolk, and that since they cannot be expected always to be good, ways must be found of making it impossible for them to be bad. I don't know if I could find a better way to say something like that. Yeah, you know, it, that quote from Lin Yutang, who is today a forgotten figure, but who was uh, during the Chinese Republic uh, leading up to 1949 revolution, who was very famous uh, outside of China and inside of China, that quote uh, is in a way an anthem of, of my book. And it's an anthem for the following reason, that, you know, Normally, when we speak about democracy, or many people do speak about democracy as if it's some sort of recipe for paradise on earth, you know, that it stands for um, the equalization of life chances, for the dignity of people, uh, for closing the gap between rich and poor, etc. Of course, that's um, still the case, and it's 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 been from the beginning, you know, a core theme of all Democrats and democratic politics. But running through this book is a different twist that I try to give to the whole idea of democracy, which is that it's a weapon that um, humans have created to deal with bossing and bullying. You know, that democracy is suspicious of arbitrary power. And Lin Yutang, you know, puts it very nicely. That was written in the 1930s in a pretty dark period. You know, that democracy, um, the reason why we have elections, the reason why we have public accountability mechanisms, the reason why we have civil societies that, that can sometimes um, shout against those who rule is because um, power corrupts and absolute power, as the 19th century phrase has it, you know, corrupts absolutely. So democracy is for well-being and equalization of life chances, but it's also, um, it's got an anarchic quality. It has a punk quality to it. It's on bad terms with, with arrogance, uh, with hubris, uh, with fools, you know, who are in charge of institutions. Yeah, yeah, I love that you uh, say that about it, that it has this punk quality. It's it's not going to take fools. I know you've said that it has a, a no-nonsense way of dealing with power, and obviously that is a very appealing thing to it. And you've said as well that democracy is an alternative to tyranny, oligarchy, aristocracy and monarchy, for example. So we know what it's an alternative to, Given that history is so important, as you say, let's look at what democracy actually is uh, and where it came from, because that is also something that's very illuminating and uh, definitely speaks some uncommon sense. Yes, let's. Yes. First of all, Athens, everyone thinks that Greece, uh, you know, is this birthplace of democracy and, you know, Western civilization. We see, you know, the Ramsey Centre, um, no doubt, probably thinking similar things and, you know, talking about the brilliance of Western civilization. But that's not necessarily what actually happened. So I wonder, could you tell us what did happen? Yes. So this book does spring more than a few surprises, uh, I hope readers will find. And one of them is that it questions what 
was, in fact, a 19th century view uh, that's still with us today, that it all began in Athens. You know, when when people are asked uh, where did democracy begin, what's its birthplace, they would probably say Athens. And if they visited Athens, they will see the Acropolis and they'll see the place where the assembly uh, of male citizens met, etc. Well, this is a 19th century uh, tale that actually has been upended by archaeologists and historians. And what I tried to do in the book is to assemble that new evidence that particularly was was um, dug up by a Danish archaeologist named Torkild Jakobsen. And basically what Jakobsen, in his fieldwork in areas like Syria and Iran, came up with in the 1930s, is he discovered that assemblies of people, face-to-face assemblies of people were common at least 2,000 years in that region, at least 2,000 years before Athens. And that the story that I tell is that those assemblies of equals, you know, of mainly men meeting in public face-to-face to decide taxation and matters of, you know, peace and war, that those men gathered together as equals. That principle of what I call assembly democracy is the first form of democracy. That was an invention of the Syria Mesopotamia uh, region. And those assemblies as a way of handling power were transported through time to the east, to what is today Pakistan and, and India. They also were transported through the Phoenicians to through into the um, into the Mediterranean area, and the Greeks in Athens in particular uh, had the the gall to claim them as their own invention. Well, it's not uh, true, and that 19th century view that it all began in Athens needs uh, radical uh, radical rethinking. The point is that. The earliest forms of democracy, even the word itself, have Eastern origins. Democracy meant from around 2500 BCE onwards uh, through the Greek world, democracy meant self-government of the people. And the people were typically men who consider themselves as equals who feared tyranny, who saw no reason for having monarchy, uh, who introduced into the world uh, a practice that supposed that people are just good enough to govern themselves and that on earth they can decide how they will live in the present and how they can shape their futures. I say in the book that this so far is still the most radical political idea that we humans have created. And it's a gift, so to say, from the East. It's not a Western invention. You do say that democracy, the word, has no known wordsmith. And um, you've referenced there, you know, where it came from, where we think it came from, saying that the roots of the word are minimally traceable to the Linear B script of the Mycenaeans seven to ten centuries earlier. So, I mean, it is quite astounding to think that it went back that far to, you know, the time where, uh, which we talk about linear A and linear B and tablets and scripts. And I mean, yeah, it, it is quite 
amazing. Yes, in the book, I tantalise my readers uh, a bit by uh, pointing out honestly that there are lots of things we don't know in the history of democracy. Democracy uh, keeps her secrets close to her chest. And one of them is we don't know who exactly were the first individuals or groups to, to use it. But the evidence uh, coming out of the Eastern Mediterranean is that, yes, Linear B, a language that was only decoded in the early 1950s, and it is, uh, it's obviously connected to Linear A, which has still not been decoded. In Linear B, uh, this language of the Mycenaeans, there were words like damos and, and damakoi. And damos um, referred to a group of people who once owned property, who were uh, stripped of their property and their powers and who were rendered landless and powerless. Uh, so it was a word that described um, people who were uh, uh, in the lower strata and who, you know, were rendered uh, powerless. And so the family of terms that came to be born in the Greek democracies, the family of terms have much older roots, going back at least a thousand years. It's a, it's a puzzle, it's an enigma, but the book emphasizes this point because, once again, Amy, the, the, the origins of, of democracy is more complicated than the old 19th century story that it all began in Athens. Yeah, and you did say she and her, which picks up on another point you make, which is that democracy has always been seen as a woman and symbolic portraits of her have always been female. Yes. What are your thoughts on why that is the case, especially because in those early times, as you point out, really the people who were empowered by democracy were predominantly men? Yes, uh, another puzzle, another paradox. And, you know, that there has been a long-standing complaint until today that democracy principally serves men. Well, one of the complications of that story is that in classical Greek, of course, the word democracy is feminine. And uh, running throughout its history, there are symbols of democracy that I try to assemble uh, in, in this book, and there are several illustrations, uh, where democracy is a woman. Most recently, in the Sudanese uprising uh, against the military dictatorship uh, during the last uh, couple of years, a woman named Ala Salah became famous for urging crowds to stand up, to, to be courageous, to resist um, this horrid military dictatorship in, in Sudan. In Hong Kong, she appears as a woman with a helmet and an umbrella tucked under her arm and a gas mask. And she appeared in Tiananmen Square in 1989 in, in Beijing. And going back, this goes back through time, uh, there is an image in Italy in the 16th century of democracy as a woman, as a peasant woman, holding a pomegranate in one hand, a symbol of the people, you know, many seeds, and in the other, a handful of snakes, presumably poisonous snakes. And going all the way back to Athens, if you visit Athens, you will see this wonderful uh, stone carving from 
around 330 BCE, where democracy is crowning old man Demos. She's a woman. So it's a puzzle that I try to talk about in in the book. Uh, And I think that the short answer to, to your question, Amy, is that democracy as a woman is She's represented as a woman because democracy gives life to human beings on the face of the earth. She's represented as a source of life-giving energy. There are times when democracy is feared. Uh, Certainly the Athenians were, were worried that the goddess of democracy could take revenge on the men who took decisions that were, let's say, blind or foolish. And there are those moments uh, where democracy as a woman is feared, as in that Italian uh, representation of democracy as a peasant, you know, as a rough, roughly dressed peasant woman with snakes in her left hand. So there you have all the imagery of masculine representations of of woman as life-giving, as to be feared, and actually despised, all mixed uh, together. Well, of course, what's been happening in the last two centuries is globally an attack on much of that imagery and demands that are coming from all kinds of sources, unfinished, that women are entitled uh, to dignity, to lives freed from violence, that women are entitled to live their lives differently than men. And that is an unfinished revolution, but it is part of the story of, of women and democracy. And you do have a section on gender in Athenian democracy. There's a really interesting quote that you say when you're talking about the good citizen coming equipped with a phallus, uh, you say that its democracy was a phallocracy and that essentially there was a a real focus on the men in public life gathering together. There was also a clear kind of expressions of homosexuality linked in with democracy as well and also that the system of Athenian democracy rested upon slavery. So it may not fit our presumptions of what we would think a democracy would count of as now. Yes, you put it more succinctly and beautifully than I do in the book, uh, Amy. I think that this idea that Athens, which is the best studied early democracy, the best studied assembly democracy is, uh, is the phrase that I use, in that, in standard views, you know, it's all a male show, that uh, it's men with phalluses who, you know, rule, and they rule women in the private sphere and their children and the slaves who cook and clean and, and do other household uh, tasks. That view was challenged in the work of probably one of the greatest uh, scholars of, of Athens, a French woman named Nicole Leroux, d- during her lifetime's work. She's sadly no longer with us, who wanted to say that, you know, gender fluidity was a very striking feature of life in, in Athens. So although there was this hierarchy, you know, that in 
in the Agora, in the public meeting place in Athens, uh, was entirely a male show. And although underneath was the private sphere, compared with the public, the private sphere where women were regarded as um, the property of, of men, and women were engaged in the necessaries, producing the necessaries of life. In fact, the imagery uh, doesn't quite map onto that. Democracy was a woman. And within the sphere of masculinity, there was widespread acceptance of fluidity and the sense that homosexuality, as we would now call it, is, was completely normal. So drinking parties, for instance, were rather orgiastic, to say the least, from the records that we have. So democracy helped loosen. It's a theme that runs through the It helped loosen, you know, boundaries. It challenged orthodoxies. And, and signs of that are already evident in the Athenian democracy. And it's a theme that runs through the book that, that one of the things that democracy does when its spirit and its substance, you know, takes a grip on people is that it persuades people that the way things are now is not necessarily the way things have to be, that the future can be different than the present. Democracy denatures power. It uproots uh, certainties. It introduces to the world a sense of uncertainty about who, who governs and where our lives are going. Elections are just one example of that. We don't know who will be governing Australia in after the May elections. Democracy, that's one of the features of democracy, that it denatures power. And that already happened uh, in Athens in matters of gender. I'm speaking with John Keane, Professor of Politics, and we're talking about his book, The Shortest History of Democracy. Now, John, you did just mention electoral democracy, really, or you hinted at it um, with elections, but of course there is then monetary democracy as well. So I wanted to jump to these two areas. First of all, up to the obvious next step, which is electoral democracy. Oh. How did we get to that point from, you know, assembly democracy to something like electoral democracy, which involved political representation as one of its key features? Well, the book documents, Amy, several revolutions of imagination in the history of democracy, and one of them took place towards the end of the 18th century, where democracy was reimagined to mean self-government of the people through their elected representatives. So what happened in the last quarter of the 18th century was something that the Greeks, for example, Athenians, would not have understood. The Greeks didn't even have a word for representative or representation. And they didn't hold periodic elections. They met, you know, a dozen times a year to decide things, but the notion of periodic elections was absent. So in the uh, last quarter of the 18th century, in the Atlantic region, in Spanish America, in North America, and in Europe, champions of democracy began to demand that there ought to be elections to parliaments, and that these elections should involve uh, multi-party systems, 
that there should be freedom of the press, that there should be freedom of public assembly, and that government should rest on the consent of the governed. Now, it set up all sorts of interesting questions about my, you know, majority rule and what about minorities. But the point is, a revolution happened in the way that democracy was thought about. So, for the first time, and I try to show the old roots uh, of this, the deeper roots of this, but for the first time, democracy comes to be seen as principally a synonym for periodic free and fair elections. And that mantra is still repeated today, for example, by journalists and plenty of academics and plenty of citizens think that, without much awareness that actually it happened relatively late in the history of democracy. And thereafter, from that time that democracy gets reimagined, you know, uh, bloody struggles uh, begin for who counts as a citizen. And that is the story of the struggles that took nearly two centuries to complete, the struggles for one person, one vote, for the inclusion of not just the middle classes, but also workers, and women, and then, of course, uh, the inclusion of colonial subjects. That took nearly two centuries to unfold, and in the story that I tell, electoral democracy came to something of a, a high point immediately after World War I, then fell into a deep crisis during the 1920s and 1930s, and that middle part of the book, in effect, describes a tragedy because by 1941, uh, there were only 11 electoral democracies left on the face of the earth. Australia was uh, one of them. But most experiments in building a democracy, you know, with free and fair elections failed during those uh, fateful two decades. Mm. And so what were the alternative modes that seemed to have taken over, given how lacking there were in terms of democracies at that point? Well, the great crisis generated by World War One and the aftermath of World War One, uh, and of course, another global war that broke out in the mid-30s in our part of the world, in Asia, and then in Europe in 1939, gave birth to several alternatives. One was a return to monarchy. That happened in the former Yugoslavia. Another more prominent trend in the 1920s and 30s, an attack on electoral democracy, electoral parliamentary democracy, was the birth of, of strong military dictatorships. That happened, for example, in Poland. And then, never happened before in the history of humanity, the birth of totalitarianism. That's a word that dates from the early 1920s. It came in the form of Mussolini. Uh, it came in the form of, uh, of course, Franco in uh, Spain and Hitler and Imperial Japan in our region. Totalitarianism had, I say in the book, you know, some democratic qualities. I put that in quotation marks, you know, because total rule was in the name of the people. You know, it sounded democratic, but in fact, totalitarianism, as we now know, was a system of one-party rule, filled with fear, lots of, of violence, and, and of course, uh, war. 
that totalitarianism uh, brought democracy to the point of democide, to the point of, of death. So the end phase of electoral democracy, the second in three phases in the history of democracy, that end phase of electoral democracy is a pretty, pretty sad uh, a pretty sad dynamic, and I try to describe it uh, in all of its uh, bloody and tragic detail in the book. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know that um, in this period, as you say, civil society was able to flourish because it also meant that with the advent of parties and factions, there was also the involvement of non-government associations like trade unions and businesses, different interest groups getting involved in politics and in democratic systems. So there's also that going on in the background. And obviously you say free and fair elections are, is kind of a key platform of this form of electoral democracy. But as we know, democracy now goes far beyond just free and fair elections, although that is a really clear and essential component to it. So I wonder if we could jump to monetary democracy, as in M-O-N-I-T-O-R-Y, and this third phase and what that entails and looks like. Yes, um, I'm glad you spelled it out, Amy, because uh, I have given talks where people think I'm speaking about monetary democracy. The idea in the last part of the book is that uh, during the 1940s, when electoral democracies were on their knees, and there was a period of total war, totalitarian rule, and so on, great upheavals of, of people's lives, um, statelessness, and so on. It was in the 1940s that another revolution happened in the way that democracy was understood. Uh, the, the democratic imagination, you know, flourished. And it's in that decade that I've studied and write about in the book that Democrats, small d Democrats, began to realize that the trouble with making elections central to the whole notion of democracy is that it could it could give rise to Hitler's, you know, that a party could develop, win enough support in the name of the people and go on to destroy democracy. And so the idea in the 1940s was that there needs to be built in to the idea and the practice of democracy something other than something beyond free and fair elections. Democracy came to mean nothing less than free and fair elections, but something much more. And that something much more was the building of institutions that could check and balance elected governments, watchdog institutions that would guard over not only elected governments to ensure that they didn't abuse their power, but also would come to watch over corporations and other abuses of power. So it's in the 1940s that democracy came to, to be reimagined as what I call monetary democracy. M monitor, it's not such good poetry, but it's the accurate term for describing the way that democracy comes to mean the public accountability, the, the, the permanent scrutiny of power by watchdog and barking dog institutions. And 
since that time, it doesn't get much journalistic coverage, but it's important to see that more than 100 different types of power monitoring institutions have been born since roughly the late 1940s. You know, election monitoring, the right of workers to elect representatives to governing boards, as in uh, the German system, participatory budgeting, uh, it's a Brazilian invention, truth and reconciliation, tribunals, public forums, famously popularized by one in South Africa, and there is going to be one in South Australia. I mean, these are among the institutions, very often paradoxically unelected, that play, I think, a very important role in preventing the abuse of power, of preventing arbitrary exercises of power. So the whole ecology of power and the contestation of power changes under conditions of monetary democracy. And when you add to this the internet, digital networked information, then we live in an age, we all recognize this, in which scandals are a daily, you know, chronic matter. So all of this is uh, would, would surprise greatly Athenian Democrats, and all of this would hugely surprise the champions of electoral democracy at the end of the 18th century. They would barely recognize the substance and the spirit of democracy. Would you add anti-corruption commissions to a kind of idea of monetary democracy? Yeah, absolutely. If you think about anti-corruption commissions, we don't have one in Australia at the federal level. We need one. Mm. Think about their logic. Well, what they are, um, they're, they're institutions that typically are not elected. They sit aside elected governments. Their job is to collect information publicly to monitor the way governments uh, function. And in some cases, globally, they also are briefed to look at the way corporate power is exercised. And when they have teeth, anti-corruption commissions blow whistles on violations of, of rules of integrity in public life. And if they've really got sharp teeth, they have the power to subpoena witnesses and plaintiffs and to actually recommend that uh, there be criminal proceedings against those who have abused power. Anti-corruption commissions are, are actually a symbol of this new monetary democracy that I'm talking about. Their work doesn't conform to the to the electoral cycle. You know, their work is ongoing, it's permanent. And the point is that if you have a democracy without an anti-corruption commission, then corruption will flourish. That's for sure. Absolutely, as as we know is the case. And obviously there's um, some state-based anti-corruption commissions who've done important work in recent years. I was really reflecting on this last chapter in particular and thinking about 
how we have seen whistleblowers treated really poorly in this country and obviously national security laws have been one reason why or how they have been treated in such a way. Uh, We've also seen constant underfunding of bodies like the Australian National Audit Office, a kind of indirect undermining of their work in a sense. We just saw in New South Wales anti-protest laws go through the parliament passed by Liberals and Labor. So thinking about how Australia is performing, I guess, if you think about a democracy and what its aims are and what you say its function is to be, and we're seeing, I guess, governments and parliamentarians bring in laws that seem to undermine the functioning of democracy, I wonder if you could share your personal and intellectual reflections on Australia's position at the moment and how it's functioning as a democracy. Yeah, Amy, I I feel, in a word, melancholy, and I perhaps better explain myself. You know, once upon a time, as I show in this book, in the 19th century, Australia was an important laboratory of, of democratic innovation in the era of electoral democracy. Women won the right to vote and the right to stand for the first time in the world in my native South Australia, 1894. Australia developed written constitutions under imperial conditions, and they were often accepted, for example, in Victoria and and South Australia, Tasmania, new written constitutions that were ratified by more or less adult male suffrage. Australia elected the first social democratic Labour government in the early years of federation, the first time in the world, etc., etc. We introduced industrial tribunals, uh, which functioned as monitoring bodies around World War I. Since that time, a lot of things have happened, and I'm obviously summarising and simplifying, but in the last decade, I think we've become a complacent democracy, and there is certainly need for institutional uh, reform. I'm not sure who's going to deliver it, but think about this. We have not only no federal anti-corruption commission, we have no federal body that allows our Indigenous peoples the right of representation in public affairs before parliaments. They were abolished. Uh, That was the, the previous body was abolished under the Howard government. We don't have a properly functioning audit office, and as you say, underfunded. We have a flourishing, let's say, industry of corrupt patronage. Our permanent residents don't have the right to vote. We have several million permanent residents in our country who love the country, who work, who pay their taxes, but they have no rights to vote. The list goes on, and what I think is that this democracy, which has become complacent, uh, needs shaking up. And the point, you know, brings us back to fundamentals. Why is democracy a good thing? Well, yes, democracy is a good thing because it offers, unlike any other form of government, it offers dignity to all people. It, It is against violence. It is for It's for self-determination of peoples through elected representatives. But it is also a way of handling power that is against 
bossing and bullying and to the and manipulation and lying and deception seen in this way we have a democratic shortage a shortage of its spirit and its substance and the renewal the politics of its renewal i think is one of the the great priorities uh, that is now facing our country i think we're going to hear a lot about this or much more about this uh, in the election campaign that's begun. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, John. And I could talk to you for a lot longer because I have so many more questions, but we'll have to finish it there. I'm so grateful to you for taking us through just some of the topics that you bring up in this book. It's such an extensive book, even with the title, The Shortest History of Democracy. You fit so much in there and it's very entertaining and engaging as well as thought-provoking. So thank you very much for writing this book and also joining me today to explain it. Amy, it's been a great pleasure again, and I hope we'll speak on another occasion. And I urge everybody listening to, yeah, get hold of uh, a copy of the book because it's, uh, I hope, readable and it will generate all kinds of thoughts, I think, that are locally relevant. But thank you very much for the invitation. A pleasure. I hope we do meet again too. I've just been speaking with John Keane, who is Professor of Politics at the University of Sydney, the author of many books, which I mentioned at the top of this chat. And this book is called The Shortest History of Democracy, and it's been published through Black Ink. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome back onto the show Jess Hill. Jess is an investigative journalist and the author of See What You Made Me Do, which actually won the Stella Prize in 2020. Jess is also the author of a quarterly essay which was released last year called The Reckoning and which was looking at the Me Too movement in Australia. Jess has also led a couple of other very important projects which we'll be referencing today, one of which is a three-part television documentary series on SBS also called See What You Made Me Do and uh, The Trap, which is a podcast series hosted by Jess and uh, co-written by Jess, then that's been through the Victoria Women's Trust. And for those who aren't familiar with Jess's former life, she was a producer for ABC Radio and a journalist on background briefing for the ABC, a correspondent in the Middle East, which is when I first followed her on Twitter. So she's got a huge amount of experience in her life, and it's an absolute pleasure to be able to speak with her today on such an important topic which is all about domestic abuse and coercive control and it's something that Jess certainly has been helping Australians to understand is what is coercive control and that is one of the key aims clearly in this podcast series called The Trap. So I welcome Jess now. Hi there and how are you doing? Hi Amy, I'm really good. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm really pleased that all the work that you've been doing clearly has been leading to a lot of progress from where we were even when we last spoke in 2019. Mm. Yeah, well, I think that there's work coming from so many angles and I think there's been an acceleration of attention in this area of gendered violence and something of a, a boiling over, you know, on uh, certainly on the national stage, I think, you know, last year what year was that 2021 it was um 
you know, as we were still in the grip of COVID, like gendered violence was the story of the year, um, impossible to ignore. And I think even with a recalcitrant government, um, you know, at a federal level, we've still managed to keep it on the agenda in a way that's, um, yeah, been surprising to me that it just keeps on demanding the attention that it does. And so I think that there's a lot that's happened culturally and a lot that has shifted that, that is on the way to shifting, but I always waiting for those pennies to drop and for the, you know, legislation to be put in or for the reforms to actually be actioned uh, because sometimes a lot of talk about it can feel like change. But when you go back to looking at how are things for victim survivors right now who are leaving or who are in these relationships, it's like are things actually different or does it just feel different? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it definitely feels different because we've had Grace Tame as Australian of the Year. You know, she's been so vocal, so brilliant. Um, and I know you're on a, on a panel with her at the Adelaide Festival. And uh, that was such a great conversation, by the way. So oh, I hope people can go back and watch it. Yeah, it was so compelling. But, you know, we have had all these brilliant women across, you know, First Nations peoples and, you know, Grace and Brittany Higgins and um, women with a disability who've been talking at the Disability Royal Commission mm. recently about their experiences of sexual assault and abuse. So there are so many people coming forward to give their experience it does have that feeling, doesn't it, of momentum. But mm. as you say, and as this podcast shows, when you've been speaking with victim survivors, it is clear that there's so much to be done. Like it's it's actually quite overwhelming when you mm. hear what their experience is because you think, how could this be happening in Australia? Surely our values aren't compatible with the systems that are in place that as you show in this podcast, clearly are almost perpetuating it. Like mm. it doesn't seem like it's there to fix it. Well, our values as they are, you know, felt and thought of um, aren't compatible with that. But so much of what we think are our values don't match our behaviours. And I think that we see that at a state level um, where we see so much of what we think are our values of, you know, police protecting the community, you know, yes, sometimes they do and then other times they really don't. Um, and some parts of our community know that more than others. You know, the family law courts, like that, the, the value of the family law courts and, and what is stated in legislation is that the child has a right to be protected and yet, you know, we have things like 88% of child sexual abuse allegations made in the family law courts are not substantiated by the courts. So they're not believed. You know, so we have all these values in place that are supposed to constrain <laughs> our, our behaviour and to guide us in how we respond to these things. And, and so often they just, yeah, they don't dictate behaviour. And I think that's really, that's what I mean about when we see these cultural shifts and some ways in which that's measured is to measure attitudes. And on that you know, on that notion of values and what are our attitudes, we can get increases in attitudes that seem positive, like more people see controlling behaviour as a form of abuse or more people don't think that husbands have a right to, you know, um, have authority over their wives. And yet it's the same people who will answer yes to those will also be abusive because the values of individuals, the stated values, and even the deeply felt values will not always match behavior. So that's why, you know, because values are not enough to constrain us, <laughs> that's why we have to have it locked in 
in other ways. And, mm. and one of those ways is legislation and other ways is, is in reform of practice, but an accountability, essentially, accountability at every level from the individual through to the state organs. That's so true. And that's why I think a lot of people say training is just not going to fix it, like Mm. trying to change people's individual behaviours and, you know, increase their self-awareness. That's like one very small part of a much bigger piece. Mm. I want to go to some of the statistics that were in your book and that will lead us into the podcast and these kind of terms like domestic abuse and coercive control. But I kind of wanted to give people a bit of a scale for what we're talking about here, that it's not some small thing that happens to other people. Domestic abuse is experienced by one in four Australian women, accounting for nearly 60% of the women hospitalised for assault. It drives up to one in five female suicide attempts. And then if we look at the number of Indigenous women in prison, 70 to 90% have been a victim of family violence. The list goes on. And then Mm. if we look at the really severe end of the consequences of domestic abuse, of the 87,000 women who are killed globally in 2017, more than a third were killed by an intimate partner and then another 20,000 by a family member. And you say in Australia, one woman a week is killed by a man she's been intimate with. So it's either a current partner or a former partner. Mm. This is really shocking. I mean, you can read out all these statistics and people are appalled, Mm. but then to listen to their stories in this podcast is a whole other thing. But first of all, just so that we get a sense of where you're coming from, why do you use the terminology domestic abuse and what does that encapsulate that might be different from a different term that people could use like family violence? Yeah, sure. I mean, like all of the terms are imperfect. Um, Domestic abuse is imperfect. Um, Other terms that are more visceral, like intimate terrorism, um, I think can be misleading in terms of trying to describe some situations. So we're trying to find terms that will encapsulate the broadest kind of behaviour without being blanded out entirely. And the reason I changed the term that I was using to domestic abuse was really off the back of an article that was written by Yasmin Khan, who works with, the, well, basically heads up a, um, a South Asian support service in Queensland. And what she was seeing is time and again, women, particularly South Asian background, coming in and saying, well, it's not domestic violence because he never hit me. The worst that would have happened is like a cup of hot tea in the face or, you know, like violent acts. But as far as they were concerned, that was not an assault. But what had been happening in the background was horrific levels of coercive control. And Yasmin and others too have seen how the term domestic violence, as much as we've tried to redefine it to include things that aren't just physical, um, to include other types of abuses like financial, spiritual, psychological, that what it doesn't quite capture for a lot of people, things that, that don't sort of, that don't have that physical harm element, that violence is a word that is so landed in the psyche as something that must include some kind of physical harm, no matter how much we try to redefine it. And I think that because I'm so often describing coercive control, um, because really that is what the majority of women who seek help are experiencing. It's what the domestic violence sector sees by and large. And that a lot of coercive control will, will feature no physical violence at all. So I felt like to call it domestic violence is just continuing to to really channel people's attention into the wrong um, onto the wrong thing. And to call it domestic abuse will at least open up that conversation that really what we're talking about is a far broader spectrum of behaviours. 
Yeah, it is so broad. And that's something that comes up for a number of the victim survivors is that they say, I didn't even realize I was being controlled in this coercive way, coercive control. They didn't know what the signs were, Mm. um, what it entailed. Uh, They just thought they were in a kind of bad relationship or their partner was stressed um, Mm. and that they could fix the situation. And also what was quite shocking in the podcast was to hear about the teenagers who are also in these situations of domestic abuse, because as you point out in the podcast, we often think of, you know, the young love in this very idealistic way. It couldn't possibly be happening, you know, to teenagers. Mm. You know, this is something that maybe an adult could perpetrate, but what would kids know? So, uh, you know, could you expound a little bit about how coercive control happens for teenagers and adults? Sure. I mean, Teenagers, the 16 to 24 is the highest risk age group for coercive control. And so many adults who I've interviewed really had it begin um, very early in an early relationship, sometimes with someone their own age, often with with um, particularly guys who are older. And I think the reason why teenagers are so vulnerable both to being victimised but also to perpetrating it is because of their heavy duty, overpowering emotions that come with that first love. And I think we're more likely to sacrifice our independence when we're younger. We're more likely to compromise more and more of ourselves to try to make ourselves attractive to to our partner, to, to win their trust, to keep it going because we want more than anything for this relationship to continue, to brush off things that are concerning, particularly when you haven't had experience and you don't have anything to compare it to. um, It's very difficult. Even very, very experienced people who've had multiple relationships find it difficult to identify, as you've said. But when it's your first relationship, it's even harder. And I think also that obsessive nature, it seems actually quite normal. teenage relationships so it's even harder to see those red flags it's becoming even you know quite standard for teenagers to really know where each other is at at every moment of the day too because of things like location tracking and snapchat and you know where there's much less private space experienced by teenagers so really it's this i mean it's the same system the person using the coercive control will adapt it to whoever they're controlling um, and to whatever environment it is in. But essentially it's the same. It's, you know, winning trust or over really overpowering someone with a type of love bombing where it's just like this type of obsessive, full-on displays of love, need for, you know, overt um, types of, you know, displays of commitment. So in a, t- and in a teenage relationship, that can just be that, like, you need to be with me at all times. Like, I, I don't want you seeing friends on your own or they just make it really difficult for you to see friends on their own and it feels like you're committing to a life with them. When they're older, it can be like, we want to move in, I want to get married, I want to have kids, that sort of thing. Um, but basically it's a process by which the person's independence and autonomy is overpowered by their partner And it happens via isolation, micromanagement of their activities, surveillance, like just can be relentless text messaging or ongoing sort of expectations that they'll know where they are at all times. It can be actual surveillance apps on their phones, degrading remarks, often sort of jokes about their weight or trying to drive a wedge between them and their supportive connections. So, you know, things like 
saying, I don't think those friends are, very, are any good for you. They don't understand what we have. Or I heard them talking about you and I just think, you know, you should move on to someone else. Those sorts of things, you know, this cuts across adolescence and adulthood, making it difficult for you to access independence, which can be making it, when you're older, making it difficult to access money. It can be making it difficult for you to access transport. It can be like sort of having a consequence if you choose to go out and do something on your own. So if you want to go out on a Friday night with friends, there's a feeling like, oh, he's going to sulk for a week or, you know, so there are all different ways in which independence can be constrained. Then I think you get the threats and the threats can be overt. Like if you go out tonight, I'm going to harm myself. I need you to stay home. Or they can be covert, which is just that sense that, if you wanted to actually live the way you want to live or if you wanted to see those friends, um, that you know that there'd be some kind of consequence. Either he'd sulk or he'd be shitty or stonewall you. So there's just this basic environment being built that feels like there's threat, even if you can't put your finger on why you feel threatened. There's confusion. It's all contradictory. And essentially a sense that, you are starting to lose a sense of who you are. And I hear so often from people who've gone through this, it's like eventually they, they one day they sort of look in the mirror and they don't even recognise themselves anymore. And they they wake up in the morning and the first thing that's in their head is not their voice but their partner's. And it's like what would he or she think of if I eat this for breakfast? What will they think if I put this clothing on? What will they think if I go and see this person? And there's this, this process that's been called perspecticide, which is basically that slowly through this process of coercive control and your independence being constrained and overpowered, your perspective is being flushed out and being overpowered by your partners such that you feel like they are actually sort of almost in control of your mind. And that is the hardest thing, often what victim survivors will say, to get that person out of your head. It is so difficult and you feel so degraded and the only person for some of these people, the only person who can give them back their self-esteem is the person who took it away and they almost never will do that. They never will see what they did to them. They never will give them that resolution. And so there's this sense that this person who you thought loved you more than anyone, who you thought respected and valued more than anyone you'd ever known, saw what a piece of shit you were, and they're the people who know the truth and everyone else who tries to tell you that's not true, they're just being nice, you know, and it's very difficult to overcome that. It's literally, it's why they use the same techniques in cults. It's a type of thought reform process and it's like after a relationship like that, you almost need a type of deprogramming. Well, it's like you say that these victim survivors start modifying their behaviours because they're anticipating the response of their partner there's a really a great thing that I found so helpful, um, which was like this cycle of violence or abuse that was laid out in the podcast, where there is this idea that there's tension building where the person is walking on eggshells around their partner because they can sense, you know, that something's wrong and they might snap. Then there's a kind of act of violence or abuse when that person has been set off 
Um, then there's a, a kind of point of remorse where there are excuses made for their acts that they apologize, but then blame the victim anyway and say, but it was really your fault. You provoked me into doing this. Then there's this pursuit of the person back to say, oh, well, I'll get help. I'll fix it. And then also there's this kind of honeymoon or calm period. I'm not sure how long that might last, but there is a point of resolution briefly and then the cycle then repeats itself and you're back to walking on eggshells. And I found that so helpful because it shows that it's so dynamic and that it moves and changes. And that also must be so hard for victim survivors to know what's happening when you're kind of getting this like emotional whiplash really Mm. through that whole process. Yeah. And some people won't have a cycle at all. Like it'll be unrelenting crap Mm. when the trap is really set and there doesn't need to be, you know, any of this type of like reprieve. But I think what's really important, what people used to think of as a cycle of violence, I think a lot of people would focus on the um, the outburst or the, either the act of abuse or the act of violence. The whole thing is abuse. Every part of it is part of the abuse. And that's the thing is coercive control doesn't switch off at any point, you know, during good times, bad times, all of it is is important. And in fact, you know, that remorse period or the honeymoon period, the alternation between punishment and reward, that is actually as intrinsic to coercive control as threats and degradation. Because it's what, it's like those little threads or just little glimmers of hope that it's worth hanging in there to try to bring it back to what they think the relationship really is which is what they started off with and it's become deformed or it's be or it's there's been stresses or there's whatever has happened to distort it instead of realizing no this relationship that you have now is as real and true as the relationship you had before there's no sort of like going back to this idealized place um it doesn't mean that no one can get past abuse of course they can but it's not like one day this this person's going to wake up and it's just going to magically go back to that place. It's that a lot of that stuff, a lot of the stuff, the coercive control, the need for control, probably the paranoia, the codependency, that was all waiting in the wings and intimacy triggered it off. And the feeling that from the perpetrator side of thing, if we're talking about, you know, the vast majority of guys who experience this, is that that promise of intimacy and the proximity to it brings up all of this these needs this you know fear of shame the you know humiliated fury the need to control the means of engagement that's all just as real as as the honeymoon period was and for some people the honeymoon period will be a total fake they'll be quite highly narcissistic they'll be pathological liars they'll fake the whole thing you know just to get you in control but that's a minority for a lot of people you know, that honeymoon period to them was real, but it was an idealized form of love. And as soon as that honeymoon period started to, you know, evolve into a real relationship in which compromise is required, that's when all this stuff gets triggered off and they don't get to just have this idealized idea of love anymore. And at that point, it's, that is as as real, all of it is real, but to overcome the habituation and need for control takes a lot of work and it's not work that the victim survivor is able to do for their partner and too many 
women and some men too, will fall into this trap that I can do it for them. I'll just show them another sign of love, another sign of compromise, another sign of loyalty, and it will win them over. And it's like, there is nothing, there is no amount that will win them over. There is no amount that will establish that level of trust unless they do the work to learn how to care for themselves instead of being cared for by you. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the perpetrator and that episode in particular, because it is, well, I think it's my favorite episode because it is getting into the kind of things you don't want to talk about necessarily, or that are really hard to understand, Mm -hmm. which is like, why do they do what they do? Helpfully, you point out that there's been kind of a way of looking at abusers and you've just kind of referenced it there that there are these calculating abusers who are knowingly manipulating and degrading a partner to dominate her and they kind of are specifically choosing a partner they know they can control who might be particularly caring or nurturing but they may not be emotionally attached to that woman Mm. in particular they may not have had that kind of deep love experience and therefore you say they might tend towards the sociopathy scale Mm. and then there is this other type the paranoid insecure codependent abuser who as you've laid out is more controlling over time because they're secretly afraid their partner is going to leave. The abuse only surfaces in intimate relationships, you say, because that's where they start to feel triggered about being ashamed, about these feelings of fear. And and they resent their codependency. They resent the fact that mm. they feel like they need their partner, you know, and then they project that resentment onto their partner. Yeah. And this is really interesting to me. This idea, like you say, of humiliated fury, but mm. also masculinity that you bring up and that you speak to the, in particular, men about and the men who run these behavior change programs is how they're kind of almost split in two and that they're meant to model these male masculine behaviors about I'm in control and I'm the tough guy and mm. here's how I perform my masculinity. But they're discouraged from a very young age to show emotion, to even label their emotions so that they know what it is they're feeling to begin with. Mm. And so I wonder if you could share with us some of those thoughts around those men and what the research is telling us is why they're feeling fear and why that is a cause of their need to control. Mm. I think that that what some people will call halving or the, you know, binary effect where it's like here over here there are masculine traits like autonomy, strength, logic, you know, independence, self-reliance, that's all valued masculine traits. And then over here you have the feminine traits that are devalued generally, and that is compassion, softness, care, intuition, these types of traits. So, and what seems to happen is, you know, like we've come a long way since like boys don't cry, right? Like, you know, I'm, I've got a four and a half year old. I'm in playgrounds with other young boys and the boys are crying all over the shop. Um, but there's a real sense I still pick this up from, from parents who, who know better than the boys don't cry. But there's still a sense that to be responsible, you have to raise your boy to be strong. And in order to raise your boy to be strong, you need to stop him being too soft. You need to stop him being a mama's boy. You need to teach him to individuate in a way that 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 pressure is not so much on the girls. Yeah. So the problem is, is that boys and girls alike need that time to be 
with mum and to be totally attached and to need and to be dependent and not to be. We actually, the whole idea of independence and self-reliance is such a sham. You know, I fall for the sham. I'm, I'm like as patriarchal as they come internally, you know, like this whole idea of like independent strength logic, you know, all that stuff. We are a dependent species, right? But we valorize self-reliance and this whole thing of like codependence bullshit like i mean obviously toxic codependence is one thing but we are actually all codependent we need each other but we teach boys not to need anyone else and we say that that's that's like basically we infer that that is a sign of weakness then they get into a relationship and lo and behold they need that person because we need <laughs> and then they hate that about themselves and they feel weak and they feel shame and there's a and if they have a personality that is particularly shame based um, where there's a lot of deeply unacknowledged levels of shame whether it be that they had a shaming father a cold rejecting mother maybe they were bullied at school any number of reasons that they might have a real shame based personality when they come in, into this situation where they are needing that person they can feel extremely vulnerable and some, this is not something they can control. That, and this person will have their own needs. And they can see that as an individual, they might not be able to get their needs met. This person might leave. They might go off and be with someone else. And this is not conscious. This is happening at a very subconscious level. But when you have this fear, a resentment at needing that person at all, and then this sense that like deep down, I know I am, I'm not worth this love. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a shitty person or whatever. A shame-based personality will hear shame where there was none intended. And so you get these police reports like, oh, well, she didn't put the garbage bin out square to the curb, even though I told her again and again, so I, I whacked her. And they feel like they've been victimised by her actions because she disrespected them. She's like, I just forgot to put it out square. Like, who cares? It's a fucking garbage bin. Like, <laughs> um, But there's... But they're looking for signs that they are being dissed, you know? And so that's, that's where this whole humiliated fury thing comes in, that if I can create a sense of intimidation, degradation, and this is, again, I'm not saying that this is happening consciously, but if I can get a sense like that, that they are below me and that they sort of have to really think about me before they make decisions, then I'm going to feel a lot more in control of this thing that really scares me but that I also really need. And sometimes when you get that real resentment and really intense shame, you get some really sadistic behaviour from people who are otherwise not disordered but who look for all you know, intents and purposes like they have some serious personality disorder. Um, and who will behave in such a way that makes no sense to anyone who knows them to such an extent that those people won't believe it because they've never seen it because they are not in that relationship with that person. That person often will never show that. And that's why sometimes in in some of what some parts of the sector will say, the domestic violence sector, sometimes there'll be some talk about, well, he doesn't do it at work, so at home it's a choice. And I think there's more nuance in that. It's not to say that there's not choice involved in abuse because, of course, we could be making the choice to go and deal with our own shit instead of projecting it on our partners. But it's not the same as what happens at work. Your boss 
is not triggering you in anywhere like what your intimate partner is. And I think the only thing you need to prove that is to think about how do you feel with your intimate partner versus how do you feel with your boss? Like I can just say that I, you know, personally, some of the worst parts of myself and the best parts of myself will come out with my partner that I won't show anyone else because they are closer, in closer to me than anyone else is. And they bring out parts of me or I allow parts of myself to come out in that close proximity to intimacy that no other situation will trigger. Yeah. You know, because we're talking about attachment, we're talking about all sorts of things that come up, hope for the future, desires, fears, it's all in there. So if that person is not violent at work, a lot of them are feeling all sorts of things at work, but they are going to come home and express it where it's safe, safe for them, pour it into the container that is their partner, who will contain all of their worst impulses, who will forgive their their worst behavior. You know, that's the promise that so many of them think is, is what a relationship is without actually a lot of them really contemplating the person that they're pouring all of this into. Even if that person thinks I absolutely love this person who I'm treating abominably, they they can lose sight of who they are actually as a human because there's there's so much that they're doing with that partner <laughs> that has nothing to do with the with that person as a human being. It's more what does this object mean to me? And one of the key issues has been up until very recently is that we do focus on the victim survivor and trying to educate her generally how to leave, what to recognize. And even that has been kind of quite lacking until fairly recently around coercive control. But now we do have a better understanding of the red flags. But also, I think what I learned in that episode and a quote I really loved from you, a particular question you ask is why aren't we investigating as a matter of urgency what is making hundreds of thousands of men in Australia feel such a shaky sense of self-worth, feel so impotent and so entitled? Mm. And to me, that was kind of like a, I don't know, mic drop moment (laughs) because I was just like, well, why aren't we? (laughs) You know, we're not having that conversation in a public way, are we? No, not in a sophisticated way, to be honest. I think that we have... Yeah, we've done a lot of work for decades, but particularly since it's been really in the public conversation over the last seven years, really since the murder of Luke Batty is is what sort of really brought it consistently um, into the headlines. So we've done a lot of work on the victim survivor side of things, and there's still much more work to be done because coercive control, as you pointed out, makes itself invisible, you know, so a lot of people don't know whether they're experiencing it. But I still see very superficial readings of why men do this in a lot of the sort of you know prevention work where we're still really talking about this as an issue of power and control where we're still really talking primarily about this as an issue of entitlement where we're not talking enough about why do so many otherwise normal men need to get their needs met by being not just in control of their partners but by being sometimes sadistic in their emotional and physical brutality towards them like That conversation is not being had enough. The conversation about the origin of this in so many men, particularly those in prison, of trauma, that is not being had enough because there's this sense that if we look into trauma as a a root cause of some of this, it will be like an excuse. And explaining 
heart disease, explaining why heart disease doesn't become an excuse for heart disease, it becomes a way that we can then resolve it and stop it from happening. <laughs> yeah. And I see some frustration from people who've worked with men in this in this space um, in terms of where the public conversation is at and that still we do not have a level of sophistication um, in talking about this. We haven't had conversations about, okay, how do we discern who the men are who are going to benefit from something like a men's behaviour change program or something more intensive? And how do we discern those who will not? And and is there a way to do that? Like these are, I'm not suggesting that there's like really easy answers to these questions. And there are people who are certainly looking into this. But I just think that on that public conversation level, the fact that we still talk so much about women's safety is a big problem. And the fact that we talk so little about men's violence is a problem. We still blanch from really grappling with the nature of what this is. Yeah. Well, you see it even in the budget speech that Josh Frydenberg delivered when it was mentioning women's violence against women and family violence, but it's never mentioning men. And the things women get in the budget are relating to their literal safety from being murdered or abused. Mm -hmm. These are all the kind of things. It's not looking at the other, the flip side, Mm. as you say, that's causing it. And then we have all these Band-Aid solutions, one that's quite lacking and that you really do delve into in two podcast episodes is the police as a, an organisation in society. And one episode is about, you know, women appealing to police and how they're treated and whether they how they go in the front desk lottery, as you say, whether they're going to get a friendly ear, someone who is perhaps specialised or interested in family violence or domestic abuse, or someone who's actively disinterested, doesn't mm. want anything to do with it, mm. um, is sick of being called out to so-called domestics. Uh, so you've got that part of it. And then also the podcast episode after, which is police perpetrators, mm. which is you know something which really opened my mind. But I wonder, could you tell us about what you learned about in particular the police. I know, you know, there's the court system and a whole other range of issues, but, you know, the really differing experiences that women get and some of the reasons why the police don't seem to be able to deal with the issue that is literally the greatest demand on their time. Mm, Yeah, totally. And I think whenever you see a system where it is really objectively failing to do its job, consistently to put it kindly you got to wonder what are the various inputs that are causing this to happen okay historically it wasn't a policing issue right it was a very sort of feminized um, policing issue it used to be that it was the female police would go and respond to that but it was seen as sort of like a lesser kind of crime over time, especially with increased reporting and different policies towards arrest and charging, it's become, as you say, pretty much the largest impost on police time. So what we do know, obviously, is that policing is a masculinist culture. And when I say masculinist, really, like it is predominantly white men who are police um, in positions of power and in all positions, really. So they set the culture. And it is a masculinist version of that. So we have racism and misogyny that are, you know, very strong, depending on which part of the police service you're in and which, you know, local area command you're in. But as a general vibe, that is that that defines a lot of the culture, unfortunately, still to this day. So there's that. But there's also the setup as to how police respond to domestic violence. So there is the fact that 
police are performance measured on the number of charges they can get or the, you know, fines they hand out or their stats. Now, domestic violence as a call out does not align itself with that way of measuring performance because actually the best police in the world may not get a charge but may make that victim survivor safe through other means or may get accountability for that perpetrator in other ways. So you can't measure success on domestic violence through a statistic. And the effect of that on police is that when they are performance measured and they don't have those stats and maybe they've been spending an inordinate amount of time with particular families or, or people in the community um, because they know that they need that attention because they're unsafe, that they actually suffer career-wise. And that's what a number of the police were saying in this is that like you don't progress in your career by attending to domestic violence in the way that it should be attended to. So there's a disincentive already in the in the way that the whole thing is structured. There's so many things like that that you have to consider. Like if you're thinking about reform, and I know some people want to just abolish the police, and I get that. I get why people just want to smash systems entirely because they seem sort of rotten beyond reprieve. But it's actually like if you go back to the 1960s and 70s when police did not respond to these call-outs, that was not a utopia. <laughs> like it was not a utopia having the community just being there to do whatever they could to step in. It was not a utopia having women from the sector having to go to houses with baseball bats and have their either their partner or their teenage son waiting in the car just in case the perpetrator came home. So what we have at the moment in terms of the risk that victim survivors run when they interact with police is unacceptable. It's unacceptable that police go to call-outs and look for incidents and then when the victim survivor confesses to using violent resistance or self-defence, decides that's the incident they're going to charge and misidentifies that victim as the perpetrator, all of this is not acceptable. The racism in particular areas of Australia, it's all over Australia, but in particular areas it's its more malevolent, is absolutely unacceptable and does not provide safety. Annie Mary Graham, who's an uh, excellent thinker on power, said that, you know, the young Aboriginal boys in community will know the unlawful lawmakers, you know, and there are too many unlawful lawmakers in our police. So there's this really sticky situation that we have where you cannot rip policing out of this situation and yet it is laden with risk and more risk depending on what identities you have. Mm. So what do you do? And that's a question that's really, there's a lot, a large amount of disagreement on, you know, and I think that's why I've looked into some of the study that's been done on women's police stations. And it's not to say that you just take women police and well, women police are so much better than men police. You know, like it's the fact that if you have a policing operation where the hierarchies and the performances are measured in different ways to the way that they're measured now, where you remove police from that masculinist culture and you actually give them a totally different mandate in terms of responding to keeping victims safe but also preventing the violence from happening in the first place, you know, maybe you get a different response. And I guess it's like, well, at this point, why don't we try things? Why don't we just try and see if these different approaches work? Because it seems like in the current model of policing, there is still way too much fail <laughs> after really decades of police trying to improve. And I think that whole thing about the lack of understanding of coercive control and the sorts of 
behaviors of perpetrators and why that elicits a certain behavior in victim survivors is a big part of it because young and old police will go to these call outs or hear stories and get so frustrated by the behavior of victim survivors, which to anyone who understands coercive control makes perfect sense. But for people who are trying to get results, who are trying to get a statistic, who are trying to get a charge, you know, it will be very frustrating. They'll have to do mountains of paperwork. So they start to really resent it. And so I think that the, all of that, I know I'm sort of just like rambling, but it is such a gigantic system that we need to find the points of intervention or the points of like total disruption by which to, to continue to have some system that's going to respond to people who are in dire need of help and have a greater power to step in over the power of their perpetrator. Yeah, it's so true what you say about disrupting things. You kind of can't keep relying on piecemeal or incremental change or hope that the next review of some particular incident is going to lead to lasting effects. You were saying that there was a US study that showed that 40% of male police officers between 35 and 55 years old are domestic violence or domestic abuse offenders. And so then I think you were trying to extrapolate out, well, then how many, what would the proportion be of, you know, male offenders in the police force and that it could be that or slightly less, but, you know, that's still a large proportion. It is a very large proportion. And they was, that, that was a survey that was self-reported. Well, they weren't police officers who had been charged necessarily, but self-reported using violence in the, in the previous six months. And yeah, I mean, the the issue of police perpetration, what they call officer-involved domestic violence, is really serious. It's it's perhaps one of the worst traps that any victim survivor can fall into or can, you know, can be brought into. And trying to get out of that and to achieve safety is incredibly difficult. Now, Victoria Police have just set up a, I think from, from memory, a separate unit that is going to investigate police. It's a very difficult task to have police investigating police not unheard of we have had royal commissions obviously the wood royal commission the fitzgerald inquiry you know like these things have happened but we'll wait and see you know what results that actually brings about but there has been a fiction run by state police services that they are harder on their own perpetrators within the police force than on perpetrators outside the police force and uh, like you don't need to talk to too many victim survivors of OIDV to know that that's just not the case. And I think, you know, obviously this came to nationwide attention with the case of Neil Punchard in Queensland, um, who was not a domestic violence perpetrator himself, but assisted somebody to get their the address of their ex-partner, gave them advice on what text messages to send that would be particularly intimidating. This is the sort of culture that is still alive in policing. And if you have a, a reasonably high percentage of domestic violence perpetrators within the police force, those police are often set in the culture. You know, those police are often like the real alphas in the unit. They're going to define culture. So it's really necessary for police, if they ever want to reform culture, that they absolutely do root and branch, you know, flushing out of perpetrators within their own force. Otherwise, that culture is absolutely never going to change. Yep. And then it affects their work in every of kind course. of aspect. And they're committing crimes, like, and being police. Like, you know, it's no different for me. I don't see a difference between that and police handing over paper bags to drug dealers in King's Cross and the sorts of corruption that led to that Fitzgerald inquiry and the Wood Royal Commission. You know, I think that a lot of police 
wrongdoing and criminal activity has gone from that, you know, sort of corruption, gangland, drug dealing back to much more subterranean interpersonal violence, um, which is a lot more difficult to pick up, but just as corrosive for the police force and, and incredibly damaging for their victims, obviously. Yeah. And I mean, it was really sad to hear a lot of those women in particular who were physically assaulted to say, well, thank God I was physically abused because at least it left a mark that then people believed me. Because often a lot of these men, and certainly men who are adept at manipulation, particularly police who are trained to be, you need to have all this proof to not be gaslit into being thinking you have a mental health problem, which I was also surprised to hear you say that even psychiatrists are giving women all these diagnoses of borderline personality disorder Mm. when they're actually being abused by their partner. And it's just the symptoms of coercive control, totally. Yeah, this pathologizing of women, it just really got me so frustrated because it happens in so many other domains. Totally. But I wanted to finish this conversation, Jess, by looking at some of the things that are happening and have happened. So I know there was the New South Wales inquiry into coercive control, but also there's been a coronial inquest into the murder of Hannah Clark and her children. So there's a lot that is happening and has been happening in the news about this issue, given that you are across all the different moving parts. I guess I wanted to get a sense from you as to where you are looking at for progress in that systemic, permanent legal reform and whether you're seeing any hope in that area in any kind of field, you know, from these coronial inquests, from the inquiries, Mm. are there things that you're thinking we are or could be making progress on soon? Yeah. So, you know, the conversation about whether to basically to expand the police investigation from just an incident-based system to one that would include coercive control has been really divisive. There are strong opinions for and against There is progress in terms of criminalising coercive control and the fact that New South Wales is committed to it. Queensland has sort of committed to it but not given a time frame. But there is a really important two-stage inquiry going on in Queensland, the McMurdo inquiry. Firstly, it was to ascertain whether it was a good idea to criminalise coercive control. Now the second stage of it is to look into women's experiences with the criminal justice system, both when they're arrested as offenders but also um, as victim survivors. And when I say arrested as offenders, wrongly or rightly. So I think the McMurdo inquiry is is one of the most incredible pieces of work I've seen ever in this space. The first report was incredible in its scope and it did recommend criminalising coercive control The second report I think will be very, very important in terms of like showing what safeguards are needed if you're going to criminalise and expand that criminal net um, because obviously there are groups of people, First Nations people, disabled, culturally and linguistically diverse people who are already persecuted by police at far greater numbers than Australians of Anglo background And there is a lot of work that needs to be done to make sure that coercive control legislation doesn't become just another thing that that, that further persecutes them. There is that that's going on. I think it depends on what happens at the federal election in May, but there needs to be a lot more attention on family law and on keeping children safe in the family law courts because that is really there is a lot of reform that needs to be done in that area. And, you know, that's a whole nother kettle of fish to open. But but basically, um, that is a place that I think we need to put a lot more attention. And the whole issue around funding, there are some things that 
literally do just need more money. There are some things like transitional housing, places in refuge, counsellors on family violence helplines that you just need to fund better so that they don't turn people away, you know, so that we're not sending women and kids to motels for three or four nights before we shunt them off halfway across the state to the only refuge that has a bed. These are really clear parts of the system that need attending to, that need patching up because they have been neglected for so long. And then there are other things that are not as much about funding but more about practice and about stopping us all like operating in these silos as different agencies, which Victoria has been trying to do since the Royal Commission, you know, which is really to try to get these agencies to work together so that they're not doubling up, tripling up, quadrupling up on the same families and repeating all the same work, but really getting good results, you know, for the money that's invested. So I both feel incredible optimism, especially when I look at the enormous advancement in the understanding of coercive control that's occurred in just the last two years. And then I feel (laughs) the ongoing frustration and a sense of worn downness that most people across the sector feel when they see these basic things that just haven't been attended to yet. And when they see, as you say, like you look at what needs to be done and it feels like this gigantic hill still. And that is while an enormous amount is being done. And I think that the crossover to really see this as something that is endemic in our society, that affects millions of people directly as victim survivors, as perpetrators, and millions others indirectly as close family, friends, relatives, we need to make that paradigm shift to invest in this in the way that it needs to be invested in, not as something that happens to a niche group of people, but as something that is fundamentally corrosive at the heart of our society and that in no way will we be successful as a society until we deal with this properly. And if we can spend five and a half billion on submarines that now won't be built in (laughs) France, then we can spend it on women's refuges. Yeah, Jess, it's just been so wonderful to chat with you and to get a real sense of these issues in a really deep and meaningful way. So I do appreciate your time. And also, to say thank you for what you're doing with these great organisations like the Victoria Women's Trust and this podcast, The Trap, because it really has opened my eyes and I know it will for many others if they haven't yet listened or if they have, they'll know what I'm talking about. So thank you for everything you're doing and continue to do and I hope people can check out the podcast and definitely your book, See What You Made Me Do, which is so relevant uh, and all the best for the future as well. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Amy. If this conversation brought up any concerns for you, there are numbers you can call. 1-800-RESPECT, which is 1-800-737-732, or Safe Steps, 1-800-015-188, or Lifeline on 13 11 14. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.